Greetings, film fans, and welcome to another edition of the following feature podcast. I'm your host, Arthur Wilde, and here we are. It's Sunday. I've walked the dog, I've had my scrambled eggs, and now it's time to podcast. Um, yeah, that is actually my routine. I need to kind of go out and stretch my legs a little bit and kind of, you know, I don't know. This is one of those things where I've got to sit here for an hour and, um, I'm one of those people that gets a bit restless sometimes. And I just, you know, if I don't go out and and walk and get some exercise and stretch my legs for a while, I'm just, I'm, the rest of the day is just an inability to focus on anything in particular. And yeah, okay, most of the time that's just sat around watching Forged in Fire, but still, you know, you, you don't want to you don't want to lose your attention span when you're watching something as serious as that. Um, whatever the hell that means. I'm now going to move on with the actual podcast itself. Let's get into it, people. Let's start with the movie news now. What did I say? Tenet, the uh, Christopher Nolan film. I have trouble saying that. I keep wanting to say Tenant. And I think a lot of people are saying tenant, but it's not. T-E-N-E-T. Tenant. I don't know. It's just, it's just not a natural word. But anyway, we mentioned last week that although they had it planned for the release of the 17th of um, July, um, it just looked unlikely. With everything that's been going on at the moment, it just didn't seem like that was really going to happen. And what do you know? A few days later, uh, they've announced that they're actually pushing it back. Now, I predicted that they'd probably push it back to like autumn. Um, however, they just pushed it back two weeks. Um, so it's now going to be released on July 31st. Um, they wanted the 17th originally because that's the anniversary of Inception's release. You know, Inception, that film that some people forget the title to every now and again. Not me. I'm a professional. Anyway, only two weeks, but, uh, we will be getting to see what looks like a fantastic film. Um, although, you know, Inception, uh, to those that haven't been listening to previous podcasts. Um, I liked Inception, but I just think it kind of, it tried to be too clever. And I think it gave away too much as well. Um, I made this point the other day that one of the worst parts of Inception is the end. Because leaving it the very ambiguous ending would have meant that you walk away from the film thinking about it and just kind of like trying to consider exactly what was going on and, and, you know, sort of how you think it ended, how you think, what you think was really going on. But they made a, a very deliberate choice at the end to kind of say for certain, like, yeah, this is, this is what's happening. And I just, I, you know, the whole thing kind of disappointed me. And as I say, I'm, I'm not a huge DiCaprio fan unless um, he's really being directed by Quentin Tarantino. I mean, he's been good in a few films, but, Tarantino gets the best out of him, and uh, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so Tenet is being pushed back, but it's not the only one. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 has been pushed back two months. Mm-hmm, yeah, they're not messing around. Um, August 14th was its original release date, but now it's going to be October 2nd. Um, the, actually, the original release date was going to be June 5th, so we should have seen that by now, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Mulan is looking like it's going to be the biggest film to be released post-lockdown. Uh, that comes out on July 25th. That's going to be quite huge. It's Disney's latest like live-action remake of uh, one of their classics. Um, yeah, I don't really know much about it yet, but then I'll confess I didn't actually watch the original. That's one of the only Disney films that I never actually got around to watching. Um, I think it kind of caught me at a time when I was um, considering myself too old to be watching Disney films. Like, I didn't watch Hercules. I didn't see Mulan. Um, but, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll check out the live-action version of these films. I don't know, just out of curiosity more than anything. Um, but, yeah, so that, that, that should be the biggest, the first big post-lockdown film if it does get released on um, the 25th. And then, yeah, a few days later, you'll be getting Tenet. 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 Anyway, Tom Hanks and uh, Steven Spielberg have been working on a post-apocalypse... Po- sorry. A post-apocalyptic movie. God, there's lots of peaks there. I'm going to have to edit the hell out of this. Um, so their movie, Bios, uh, has been moved up back to spring next year. Now, it was due to come out this October. 
again, due to the whole pandemic, um, they've decided to push it back. Um, I didn't actually know anything about this movie. Um, from what I can see, it's about uh, a robot that has been um, designed and built to protect um, the remaining members of the hum- human species uh, whilst they try to create some kind of a, a cure or way of saving humanity. Um, yeah, I don't know, it sounds like an interesting premise, but uh, we'll have to wait until spring next year to find out what that's all about. Um, uh, the other one uh, in regards to like dates being moved around, uh, we already talked about um, No Time to Die, the new Bond film, being moved back to like the end of November. It's actually been moved slightly forward now. Um, the new release date is going to be November the 12th in the UK and November 20th in the US, because when it comes to Bond, we have it first, and then you lot can have it after us. But we have it first. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's been um, pushed slightly forward. Not much forward, but I mean, um, I think there was a date that was going to be used for uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, and that film has been postponed, I think, till next year now. Um, and because that meant that it was a date which wasn't clashing with any other big releases, the, the um, uh, producers uh, decided that they wanted to push Bond forward a couple of weeks um, so that it, you know... And this is the thing, as I've, as I mentioned before, there's going to be a lot of conflict about these films that are being moved back, and a lot of them being moved back to around the same time. So instead of them being like released like on their own, like sort of week uh, throughout summer, now it seems like early autumn is just going to be bang, 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 like sort of four or five big films all out at once. So people are going to be shuffling around and changing dates um, continuously now until. Um, until they can really kind of work out exactly when they're going to be able to show their films with the least amount of conflict and the most amount of potential success. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted. The more I hear about that, the more I'll let you know. But as I say, it's going to be one of those things that's going to keep changing and changing and changing. Uh, one film that was supposed to be released um, was The King of Staten, Al- Staten Island. Um, this is a uh, the new uh, Judd Apatow film. Um, and it was supposed to be... Uh, it's supposed to be coming out uh, this during the week, and um, it was going to be released uh, on VOD, and it was due to be released on a load of drive-in theatres across the US. However, there had been a bit of a mix-up, and um, uh, the film was, according to Judd Apatow, the film was always due to be released on VOD first. Uh, so they had to pull it from the film, the the um, uh, drive-in films. Um, not really sure how it ended up being scheduled for release in, in the drive-in films because apparently that was never supposed to be the case um and some of the theaters were so reluctant and and slow to respond that it was actually as people were turning up in their cars and finding a space they were told the film you've come to see and booked a ticket for for weeks now isn't actually going to be shown not really sure how they dealt with that um i imagine that really pissed people off as well because you know, it's been so long since we've been able to go to the cinema. That's like my favourite go-to thing when I'm not, um, you know, working or chilling or whatever the hell I'm, I'm doing. Um, I love going to the cinema and I'm missing it so very, very much. There's a chance that um, there's a local hotel near me, uh, the Sharnbrook. Shout out to the Sharnbrook Hotel. They have a lot of like sort of um, uh, driving meets. So people with like sort of specific cars, like Japanese tuned up cars and stuff, they'll have meets there and they'll park up. And one thing they found is that they're able to accommodate a lot of people in cars. And uh, as they've done in the past, they had a special screening of one of the, I think one of the Fast and Furious films. So they were looking to do some kind of drive-in situation there. And I'm hoping that still happens because, uh, you know, I have a car, I love cinema. Um, and I also like um, to be antisocial. So <laughs> being able to watch a film without having to interact with the people around me. Oh, my dream come true. Absolutely. But, you know, we'll see. Um, so I imagine those people were really pissed off. They turned up to watch this film, which has, you know, been getting great reviews. I do love a good Apatow fil- film. Um, if you don't know, he's the guy behind, like, sort of super bad and Knocked Up and films like that. Uh, he's a very talented filmmaker. Um, but, yeah, um, this film actually is... Um, the lead actor is uh, Pete Davidson, which you might not know too well. He's actually a, a stand-up comedian that also works on Saturday Night Live, the um, improv show in America, which has never really translated to this country. I mean, there are some clips which become viral and do get picked up over here, but I don't think it, we've ever had the audience for like a 
the actual show to be televised over here. It's interesting because it's it's a success over, over in America, um, which might be more of a kind of subjective point of view, but um, it's been on TV for like sort of 30, 40 years. Um, it's the show that kind of launched stars like Bill Murray and uh, John Belushi and um, Chevy Chase and Eddie Murphy and everyone, everyone. Um, some of the best comedic names of the last like sort of 30 years that came out of America came from uh, Saturday Night Live. Um, but yeah, one of those stars is Pete Davidson. And um, uh, this is actually a story which is partially based on his true story, his, his real life. Um, he actually uh, lost his father in 9-11. Uh, his father was a firefighter in New York, and he attended the scene and unfortunately was killed. Um, so that's a true story about Pete Davidson. Um, and this story is kind of based on his life. So it's about um, a young lad who's not really kind of found his way in the world um, without the kind of encouragement and inspiration from his father. He's just kind of winged it through a series of different things that hasn't quite panned out. And um, now he's being urged by his father-in-law, played by Bill Burr, um, to consider being a firefighter, to follow in his father's footsteps. Um, obviously, due to the nature in which, you know, his father was killed, um, he's very reluctant. But at the same time, um, apparently it's about him kind of finding that camaraderie and finding out exactly what it was that, like, who his father really was to the people that knew him outside of his family. And um, yeah, I've heard great things about this. So I'm actually looking to uh, watch that this week. Uh, that might be one of my films that I'm reviewing. Um, it's only available on demand, so I'm gonna, hopefully it's on one of the services that I've got, um, and I don't end up having to spend too much money on it, because I am broke, um, yeah, I'm broke, I don't know what to tell you, um, I can't, I can't be paying, like, sort of eight ninety nine for a film that I'm not gonna be able to keep, um, so we'll see what happens, we'll see, we'll see if, what the price is, and I'll, I'll try to get that one done for next week, um, in fact, two of the films that I want to review for next week, I can only really watch, um, on demand uh, behind a paywall um, but you know it's one of those things you've got to speculate to accumulate or something like that we'll see um, in other movie news uh, Moonfall is a film that I've been hearing about this week um, starring Josh Gad uh, who you may know from playing Olaf in uh, the Frozen films uh, I say playing him doing the voice he's not an actual snowman uh, Patrick Wilson, who um, you may know from films like The Conjuring. Um, I know him best from uh, Zack Snyder's incredible uh, effort in uh, Watchmen. He played the owl guy. Jesus, I should know that. And and also it stars Halle Berry. I'm just going to skip past the fact that I don't know the, the character's name in Watchmen. I should. I love that film and I've watched it a number of times. Which, considering it's over three hours long, that says something about how much I like that film. Anyway, digress. Halle Berry, she's in the film as well. And um, I don't know what she's playing. Um, I don't know what any of these guys play. Well, I know what Patrick Wilson's playing. Um, but yeah, this is the latest film from Ro Roland Emmerich. Uh, now, if you don't know who Roland Emmerich is, um, just think of any over-the-top, really expensive CGI disaster movie that you've seen at the cinema in the last, like, ten years. It's probably one of his. Um, uh, terrible film, films such as Godzilla. That was his. Um, the Day After Tomorrow, which I kind of enjoyed. Um... And 2012 as well, which, you know, ridiculous over-the-top uh, disaster movie, but somehow watchable. It's kind of got that kind of B-movie quality, but with the most expensive special effects that you've ever seen in your life. Um, there are scenes in 2012 where the world is literally being torn apart, and it looks really, really good to the point where it's actually quite harrowing to, to witness them going through this. Um it's, I mean, it's 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 that kind of um, unbelievable that you don't have that sense of dread like you would in some films. But that's Roland Emmerich's thing. He he does like insanely kind of, you know. I, I wouldn't say it's self-aware necessarily. He does take it quite seriously. But when it comes to disaster movies, he's 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 your guy. Um, so yeah, I think did he do that San Andreas as well? I don't know. I don't know. That was a mad one. Um, but anyway, so this is his new film, and uh, it centers on the story of a crew sent on a mission to prevent the moon from colliding with Earth after it's struck by an asteroid. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I mean, that's this is what I'm telling you about, and this is um, 
this is his kind of film. Uh, so I imagine that's going to be CG heavy and just kind of crazy, crazy amount of um, madness that you're going to have to like just suspend disbelief for the entire fucking film. Um, and, you know, don't look at it as like kind of, I wonder if any of these people are going to win an Oscar. Not for this. Not for this. Um, but yeah, Wilson um, is playing a disgraced former NASA astronaut uh, whose previous mission might have had something to do with the emergency. So yeah, somehow humans do something that results in the moon heading towards Earth on a collision course. Yeah, come on. I mean, Jesus. We're just going to have to enjoy it for what it is, um, if that is possible. Uh, my last bit of movie news for this week, because I'm telling you, it's a slow... I thought last week was a slow week, but this week, I've literally I've had to do the rounds and really find some stuff. Um, because there's not really a lot happening yet. There's speculation about production, uh, but only productions that were already greenlit. Um... And there's speculation about release dates, but beyond that, any other rumours, casting news and stuff like that, I mean, I'm not even too excited about the Moonfall film, to be honest with you. I just thought I'd mention it because it was news. Um, but Paddington 3, on the other hand, is something that interests me. Um, the news about Paddington 3 is uh, di the director, Paul King, who made the first two films. Um, and if you haven't seen them, absolutely wonderful. The, some of the greatest uh, kids' films that have been released recently. Um, and just, you know, they're, they're, they're beautifully told stories that are charming and heartwarming and other superlatives that I overuse in this podcast. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, Paul King is leaving the project. Uh, uh, the script is finished, but King says he needs to uh, let someone else take the reins and put their twist on the show, on the, on the film, sorry. Um, I say show because Ben Whishaw uh, could be returning. Well, well, he should be returning as uh, Paddington because uh, he's continued to, to voice the titular bear in the Nick Jr. TV series. Um, and um, I didn't realise that, actually, because um, Paddington 2 was my first experience with the Paddington series of films. I hadn't seen the first one, but I actually um, I worked on the second one. Um, if you want to try to spot me, I, uh, I actually play one of the prisoners... Um, and you can see me in my pink uniform enjoying a nice marmalade sandwich yeah, towards the end as it scrolls along the prisoners. I'm the slightly chubby looking guy whose hat doesn't fit him. There you go. Um, but it's, it's very interesting, actually, because like sort of, um, as I say, I wasn't really sure. I, I, you know, obviously I understood that Paddington was CGI. Um, but one thing I discovered on this film was that they don't just have you kind of imagine where Paddington would be. They need someone to be playing that role, to be in place of Paddington. Um, and that meant they had to get an actor in. And of course, they had to get an actor in that's the same size as Paddington. I know you're thinking like, wow, did they get like a child? No, no, they did not. Uh, they um, hired a small person. Uh, I think her name was Lucy. I can't quite remember. Wonderful woman. Um, really, really good at what she did. Um, really kind of, uh, you know, played the role very well, although you'll never see it. You'll never really kind of be able to give her credit for it. Um, and it was just a very weird situation where she would be dressed up in Paddington's clothes and walking around. And, and because we're in a situation, if you haven't seen the film, this isn't really a spoiler necessarily, but um, Paddington goes to jail in the second film. And in one situation, he's left to do the laundry. And whilst he's washing all our grey and white uniforms, he leaves in a, a red sock, turning all of our uniforms pink, which us being burly prisoners, we're not too happy about. Um, and there's this one scene we were doing where uh, we're all sat down having our gruel. Oh, my God. They served us uh, to make it look as authentic as possible. Um they made us porridge, but instead of using milk or water, they used mushroom soup. Now, I just want to give you a second to picture that. Porridge made with mushroom soup. It's as vile as it sounds. And to make matters worse, at the end of the day filming, um, they would come and put cling film over the plates 
And when we come back the following day, they would take the cling film off, uh, which meant that those plates of mushroom soup porridge were under those studio lights for about 10 hours a day. And after two or three days, it started to smell as bad as it looked. Um, but this is the thing, we're extras and, you know, we're really good at kind of, like, just acting like we're eating. However, they, they hired quite a few people. And one thing I found is that if, if you're working on a film where you're part of a crowd scene, you're going to have a lot of newbies in that crowd scene. And um, there was one guy in particular who, um, I don't know what got into his head, but he decided to make it look more realistic. He would actually eat the porridge. And I think he got about halfway through his first mouthful before he realised he'd made the worst mistake of his entire fucking life. Oh my god. As soon as we saw him eat it, we felt ill. Um, but that was a, a hell of a fun film to work on. Um, you know, Lucy did a great job um, playing Paddington. Um, and when she wasn't being used as well, they would just use um, a model of Paddington's head to get people's eyeline. Which was on um, an adjustable stand. So basically, every now and again, somebody would walk on set with Paddington's head basically impaled on a spike. And it was it was not the most um, child-friendly moment, so I'm glad there weren't any kids in, in those scenes. But I, there were a lot of kids in the film, and I, I imagine they used that that prop quite a lot. So I just, I just feel... I hope no kids were traumatised by the sight of... Someone walking around with Paddington's head on a fucking steel spike. But yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful film to work on. And there was this great feeling of, um, you know, we're making something special, something fun, something happy. Something that's going to be like sort of putting the smile on everyone's face. It's not just children. It's, you know, if you're an adult, you can really get something out of these films. Um, and it was just a, a wonderful atmosphere. Um you know, we I, I made some good friends on that film and um, made some good contacts. And yeah, um, the, the the last day, in fact, um, was the hardest. Uh, the last day I did on it as one of the prisoners. Uh, if you've seen the film, there's a big dance number at the end during the credits. Um, and we we had to do that. We had Craig Revel Horwood. Is that his name? From Strictly. He was our choreographer for the day. And... He had about 350 portly men with no coordination, a lot of whom were in their, like, 50-plus, if not 70-plus. And he had to teach us all how to dance. <laughs> oh, my God, it was so fucking terrible. Oh, my God, it was the longest day. I think we were shooting, doing that one dancing for 17 hours. Um, and I've never watched Strictly, so I don't really know how Craig is on TV. Um, but I've been given the impression that he is like the Simon Cowell type person who's just like really blunt uh, and very kind of at times cruel with the contestants. Um, but I can tell you from working with him and if there's ever a test of, of what he's like... Um, 17 hours working with a bunch of old men who can't dance. Uh, that's going to be a test for anyone. And he was extremely professional, very composed, uh, very well humoured throughout the whole thing. Um, really lifted everyone's spirits and was very encouraging. And, you know, he was great. I, I absolutely loved him. It was my only ever interaction with him. It's my only real experience of the man. And I thought he was absolutely fantastic. Um... Unfortunately, I made the mistake of being a little bit more coordinated than some of my um, colleagues, which meant, I mean, I wasn't one of the guys that had all the glitter on his face and did the whole tap dance at the front. I wasn't that good. But um, but you are, you, are, you are listening to a man who, at seven years old, did get a scholarship to the London College of Dance, um, which I didn't, you know, do for very long. It was it was the eighties. It was mid eighties, and my dance instructor. I was doing contemporary dance, and my dance instructor was a man who wore a very tight leotard every day and had a massive handlebar mustache. And there was something about seven year old me that just was not cool with that. 
I just I just had to leave. Yeah, I, I suppose nowadays you'd you'd say like kind of oh well, I mean you know that sounds kind of mm, like it's a bit homophobic maybe. I I understand. I understand, and maybe it was at the time. You know, this is 1987. Um, the world isn't what it is now, and I wasn't a very mature. I was seven. All right, so fuck you. I don't. <laughs> it was just a very weird time. So yeah. But anyway, I digress. I could dance a little bit. I had some kind of coordination. Um, and so I ended up being given a a mop. And um, and yeah, I just had to do like a little bit more of a kind of intricate, you know, just a, a routine that all of the people that couldn't quite do like a, a simple like three-step move uh, were put up into the bleachers and stuff and up onto the, um, the balconies. And they were just told to like wave their hands in time. Uh, but yeah, there were some of us up front. And dear God, it was just a weird, weird moment. Just like trying to dance in Wellington Boots for a start. It's just a nightmare. Um, but it went on for so long. And um, and there was drama as well. I mean, there was one moment when, uh, if you've seen the film, there's a scene where Hugh Grant's character um, falls forward off the steps, is caught by a bunch of dancers who then flip him up by his feet back over again uh, until he's back on his feet. And it's just, yeah. And the first time they did that, it didn't quite go according to plan. And it's, and he, I think he didn't quite fall as far forward as uh, people were expecting. And so the guy that was expecting to catch him by his shoulder kind of caught him by his face with the palm of his hand, making quite impact. He got slapped, is what I'm saying. Um, and it was one of those things where, like, that was take six or seven. And it had been a long, long day. And that's when the director just kind of like, which I, I guess must have been Mr. King at the time. Um, I, I think it was the director. Or it, it could have been uh, the first AD or something like that. But basically came on and said, like, listen, let's let's take a break, everyone. Um, and it was really late at night and we we're all really, really hungry. But because it had gone on so late, all the caterers had gone home. and We didn't have any kind of situation. You know, there wasn't like a cafeteria or something that was open in. This is in Pinewood Studios. Um and, you know, there, there were some, like, sort of facilities, but not enough to cater for all of us. So what they did, um, they ordered pizza for everyone. And I have never seen anything like this. A transit van pulled up um, outside um, the stage that we were filming in. And this guy just unloaded, I don't know, about 250 pizzas? Um all from one chain as well, which made me think, you know, you've you just you've at least put two of the these um you know branches out of business for the rest of the night. There's no way that any one place produced 250 hot pizzas at the same time and was still able to stay open and serve everyone else that was coming in that evening. I don't I couldn't get my head around the logistics of it, but yeah. Um, that was really nice. We all kind of stood outside together and had a pizza and, you know, under the stars in the middle of the night. Um, and then we all put our wellies back on and went and danced with an imaginary bear. It, you know what? There are a lot of stories in my life which, when I say them out loud, I'm like, okay, so that sounds a bit crazy. But I am not on LSD. I am not on any kind of hallucinogenics. And that really happened. But yeah, that was that was my experience on Paddington. I absolutely loved it. And hopefully I'll get to work on the third one as well. I don't know. I didn't work on the first one, but then that might have been a little bit before when I started doing this whole business. I started working in movies about six years ago. Um, yeah. So who knows? Um, Paddington 3 is still going to be made. Uh, you know, the script and everything is, is still going to be made, is ready and good to go. They're just looking for a different director now. So more on that when it happens. Okay, let's move on to our movie reviews. And um, the first film I want to talk about this week is Leave No Trace. Now, I might mention this last week. Uh, this is directed by uh, Deborah Grenick, and it stars Ben Foster and Thomas McKenzie as a father and daughter who live in the National Park area of Portland, Oregon. Now, cut off from society and living off the land, with the occasional trip into town to collect supplies that nature doesn't provide, um, the two seem to be living a happy and healthy life. Uh, one day, a jogger spots the young girl and alerts authorities. Pretty soon, the pair are discovered and taken into custody. Tom and her dad are then processed by the system, which 
to them seems devoid of real human understanding and compassion. Forced into a more conventional way of living, Will, Tom's father, struggles to control his PTSD symptoms, and the two must find a way of to make it work. Now, it soon becomes apparent to Tom that her father isn't putting her first and cannot see the damage he's doing to her, as she has a taste of what it's like to be a normal kid with friends and dreams of her own. Um, she's becoming a young adult, and with that sense of self and the desire to live a normal life, uh, she was happy with her father, but... She was a prisoner to his mental health problems. And as she become, as she comes to terms with the uh, responsibility that she'll need to take for her own well, mental well-being, she also questions whether her responsibility to her father's needs is helping or simply enabling. Um, so it's a, very, it's a very complex relationship between these two because, you know, uh, Ben Foster's character comes back from, uh, from war and he's... He's not right in the head. He's he's suffering very, very badly from PTSD. And he can't be in society. He can't be a part of society. He needs to live separately to that. So being out amongst nature, that's the perfect solu solution for him. Um, and raising his daughter out there means that he can uh, protect her from some of the trappings of society that uh, he dislikes personally. Um and yeah, it seems like they're living a good life. But this is the thing: she gets a when they go when they get taken in. Uh, she's confronted with uh, people her own age, um, and you know, as as things develop and and they try to get away from what they're being forced into and and try to live their own lives, she sees more and more that um, society isn't necessarily as bad as her father's been. Uh, educating her to see it as um and she slowly starts to realize that there is something there for her there is a value to being a part of society and it's not just uh the material or the superficial it's uh the psychological um relationships are important um interaction is important uh intimacy can be important um and without all of this she's not really living a proper life um, there are concerns at one point that because she shared a tent with her father that the authorities have to go through the process of asking her loads of questions about their relationship and whether any boundaries have been crossed and and she can't really understand that and that's part of the problem uh, she can't really understand how uh, a person would do that um, or how a person would take advantage of that situation um, and it asks questions of the world that she lives in um, and the world that they're trying to make her a part of that she can't, there's too much conflict in her head. Um, and when she basically comes to the conclusion that whilst her father hasn't been mistreating her, everything that she's been defending hasn't necessarily been for her well-being. It's a really, really deep film. Um, and it really does kind of captivate you because you really want to see them work things out and you understand the, the pain and, and the, um, the difficulties that the father is experiencing. Um, but as uh, Tom comes to like sort of realize who she is in this whole situation um, and the part that she plays in it, um, she gets a new perspective and, she becomes frustrated at the situation that she suddenly realizes that she has no say in. Um, and it causes a lot of conflict between her and her father. But at the same time, she has to kind of consider the fact that upsetting her father doesn't end in them like reaching any kind of epiphany or conclusion or, you know, they don't move forward from it. It just pushes him deeper into this, this mental prison that he's um, found himself in since, since coming home. So it's, it's really, it's a really tough drama to get through, but it's it's captivating and engrossing. You won't feel like any sense of discomfort to kind of like walk away from the film. You'll you'll want to see how it pans out. You want to see what you know how their relationship works. Um, but yeah, it all comes down to the performances. Thomas and Mackenzie. I think this is one of her first films that she's ever done, and she absolutely blows me away. I I couldn't believe it when I first saw the film because. 
I believed her. Every single thing. She was able to do so much um, through expressing her emotions and, um, you know, there's a lot of this film which doesn't have a lot of dialogue. So uh, the, the two have to do their best to convey emotion via uh, just, you know, body language, uh, facial expressions and stuff like that. Um, and she does a great job. Ben Foster as well knocks it out of the park, if you pardon the pun. I mean, they're living in a park. So, you know, um, he's he's an established, wonderful, wonderful talent. And he really does uh, convey that, that tortured soul um, and that, you know, he does try his best to, to make things work. Um, and it's not that he's trying, he's not stubborn or anything like that. It's just the pain and the torture of having to live in this world with his problems is too much for him. And when he's separated from it, he's happy, he's content. And he's, you know, he's more of himself than he ever could be. And that quality of life is, is it's all he can, you know, look for, really. Um, yeah, wonderful film. It's on Netflix. I thoroughly recommend it. Um, it's a bit of a heartbreaker. It's a very emotional film, um, but beautiful, really well told. And Deborah Grenick is obviously, you know, she's she makes a statement in this film that um, she's definitely one to watch. And, uh, you know, I, I can't wait to see what else she does. Um, so, yeah, check it out. Leave No Trace. It's on Netflix now. Um, also on Netflix, uh, which actually just dropped this week, is uh, The Five Bloods. Now, Spike Lee's return with his first war movie, kind of. Um, the Five Bloods tell, tells a tale of four Vietnam vets who travel back to the country they fought in about 40 years previous to, re to recover... The remains of their fallen squad leader, Stormin Norman, played by Chadwick Boseman, uh, who you might know as uh, the Black Panther. Um, but that's not all they want to find. Their comrade fell at the location of some lost gold belonging to the US government. They were sent to recover, but instead buried with the hope of returning to collect it after the war. Um, but will they be able to work as a unit to achieve their mission, or has time paid a toll on these old men? Um a lot has changed since the war, and as African-Americans, they don't feel the freedoms they fought for have been extended to them. Uh, the systematic racism towards people of colour means the conflict never ended, and they've known enemies to be more than just an opposing force. Uh, sometimes it's the very country that you are willing to give your life for that treats you with the most contempt. The film has its moments of humour, as Lee can so craftily do in any genre, uh, but it hits its stride in moments of real drama. Uh, indeed, there's one moment uh, on a boat where Paul, played by the incredible um, Delroy Lindo, has to confront his PTSD in front of his friends and his son, who, uh, worried for his father's well-being, has tagged along unexpectedly. Um, in what seems to be a partly improvised scene, uh, Lindo conveys a level of emotional intensity which makes you feel genuine sympathy for someone who is clearly haunted by his past. Um... I'd actually go as far as to say that Lindo deserves an Academy Award for a nomination, at least for this performance, because um, he really does. It's it's so real, the way he kind of falls apart and 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 loses his grip. Um, it's so tangible the the emotion that he's conveying that you know you feel for him and you you feel a genuine sense of you know worry for his his well being and his you know. His mental stability. Um, but this film it explores the sense of futility felt by uh, black people across America and beyond, I'm sure, about how much they give for the country um, that fails to recognize them as people, you know, as humans. Uh, it also explores the effect wars have on the perception of Western countries and their attitudes to humanity. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's a Spike Lee film. It's not going to be just, just a plain narrative. There's going to be subtext galore. Um, and he's really good at that. You know, he's, he, he tells more stories than is actually the plot of the film. And that's one of the things I love about his films. It's one of the things that I thought was great about Black Klansman that we, we talked about last week. And, um, you see a lot of the cast from Black Klansman turning up in this, um, in unexpected places and, and, and in unexpected ways. Um, but yeah, um, 
it's a fantastic cast and it's really well made. Um, it's kind of weird as well because there seems to be like sort of there's this weird way in which they do the flashback scenes and uh, they change the aspect ratio of the film to kind of make it into like more of a kind of 70s black exploitation film. Um, and they go so far with that, in fact, that they kind of almost intentionally uh, do not use CGI in certain films. Because when these guys flash back to what they were 40 years ago, they're still old men. There's no like de-aging or CGI used to make them any younger. And... Um, I think that's a deliberate uh, that's a deliberate move from Spike Lee because um, a lot of the cinema from that that kind of genre uh, that you know would be appealing to that demographic in in the seventies. You know, there'd be obvious moments where it'd be cheap as hell, um, but it was overlooked because there was this overwhelming sense of like finally there's representation on screen. You know, you're, you're be given a lot of you know freedom to kind of cut corners as long as you're finally showing representation of people of color on screen so that you know i mean i should probably do a whole special on the black exploitation movement but whether that's my place or not i'm not really sure um and i'm thinking about a lot of stuff like that at the moment so um yeah i, I love a good black exploitation film um as i say like i think i mentioned last week black dynamite's one of my favorite films of all time which is um, Michael Jai White's recent spoof or kind of like homage to uh, exploitation. But I digress. Um, this film is is uh, fantastic for the way it kind of tells this story. Um, and it's, you know, it's a good like sort of uh, adventure story. It kind of gets a bit like, um, you know, when it becomes a hunt for gold or buried treasure, it becomes a bit like one of those like, sort of adventure films. Um but there's also a lot of talk about the the um, the conflict, not just the the physical war itself, but um, the ability to justify the actions of the nation that you take pride in, that you call home, that you know you're supposed to be a patriot of. Um, and I think a lot of us are kind of troubled by that situation at the moment. The idea of patriotism is often hijacked by people that uh, want to use it as a, a means of oppression. Um, to ostracize uh, the the already marginalized, and you know this this film does hit that point in a more succinct and um, articulate way than I could ever manage. So give it a try. I mean, it's a great film. You don't have to feel that you have to watch it because of the uh, uh, the political implications of what it's trying to say. As a movie, it's just good fun. There's some great acting in it. Some acting which I think really needs some nominations. And yes, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. does say sheet. Because if he doesn't, then I think he gets sacked. Anyway, great film. Um, very enjoyable. Always love a good Spike Lee film. Um, and this is, yeah, it's one of his best. Um and hopefully it's a, it's a relationship that he can continue because, um, you know, if Netflix are willing to put some money behind him and, and help him put out more films, I mean, he has an audience. Uh, and it's not a specific demographic. He appeals to everyone because he is just simply put a great filmmaker. Now, my last film is a little bit different from what I normally review. Um... You know, I don't do a lot of family films. Um, I definitely don't do animated films. But hey, what the fuck am I talking about? This is only episode five. I can do whatever the fuck I want. Um, but one thing you may notice is that whilst Netflix did produce The Five Bloods, um, technically it could be considered an independent feature because of um, Spike Lee's production company. Um, the same can be said for uh, Leave No Trace. Um, you know, it wasn't a film that was necessarily made by a studio. Um, but, you know, massive studios did buy the distribution rights. And that's the same with this last one. It is a $100 million animated movie, but it was an independent feature by Laika. L-A-I-K-A, I believe. Um, and they are well known for their stop animation films. Um, Missing Link is the latest one of those. Um I think it actually came out uh, a year ago, um, but I've only just caught it. 
basically I was looking for films for my nephews to watch and um, this one came along. It's on Netflix and I just thought, let's give that a go. Actually, you know what? I've only just realized all three films are on Netflix. Um, I am not brought to you in association with Netflix. They don't endorse me or any, I don't endorse them. Uh, just, you know, they have these films. They're there. If you have a subscription, these are films that you should watch on Netflix. Um, but yeah, maybe these films are available in other formats. I don't know. But Missing Link, let's let's just focus on what I'm talking about and stop these stupid tangents. Uh, Missing Link, um, uh, basically set in 1886, Sir Lionel Frost, voiced by Hugh Jackman, is a famed explorer known for pursuing and discovering mythological creatures such as the Loch Ness Monster, which he pursues in a small rowboat with some bagpipes and a camera. Having failed to capture any evidence of his discoveries, he becomes the subject of ridicule and teasing by his peers, one of whom is Lord Piggott Dunsby, voiced by Stephen Fry, who denies him any recognition that will allow him to become a part of the Society of Great Men. That's his one dream, his desire, and it's not happening. So, Determined to prove them wrong, he wages that his next discovery will leave them all chanting his name in glory as he hunts the fabled Sasquatch. His lead, however, is nothing more than a crudely handwritten letter from an unknown source. To his absolute amazement, the author of the letter turns out to be the elusive Beast himself, although Beast doesn't quite fit the description when the giant thing introduces itself. Frost, set for fame and fortune, sets sail for Blighty, that's Britain, by the way, uh, with the newly monikered Mr. Link, uh, voiced by Sack Galifianakis, or as he prefers, Susan. Along the way, Frost must confront the humanity of his situation and admit the admiration he seeks is from the people he doesn't truly admire. And in his understanding of what's truly important, he must consider what's best for Susan. The unexpected level of sophistication um, that he experiences with Susan is a mirror on the inhumane relationships humans have with nature. It is both charming in its humour, this film, and it's heartwarming in its sincerity. Missing Link is not just a work of art, but it's an incredible stop-motion anima stop animation um, and it's a, a wholesome story of accountability and respect. Now, the one thing I couldn't get over watching this film is just an appreciation of the effort that went into it. Because when you realise everything is crafted by hand, and during the, the um, uh, end credits, there is a little kind of behind-the-scenes moment where they show just a little kind of example of how the animation was done. Um, yeah, it's... Um, it's incredible. I mean, it must have taken a, a ridiculous amount of time, but um, it's beautiful to watch. Um, it's extremely charming. It, the thing is, as well, they don't just like sort of. It's not just about the the basic movements of the the people and the creatures that, in this film. It's about the the subtle little mannerisms that bring them to life um, and make them real, um, even though they're quite blatantly and almost specifically does it designed in a way that isn't real um i really don't know what to say it's it's a film that blew me away um for what it's achieved but it's not just an achievement it's actually a wonderful story it's a beautiful story about um you know and it's it's, it's a great film to watch with kids as well because it teaches them about you know what's truly important um and how to make sure that your ego doesn't dictate your actions, uh, but more things like compassion and empathy do. Um, so I'm really glad my nephews watched it. You know, I'm always trying to kind of instill those kind of life lessons in them. But um, yeah, it was just it was just a, a very sweet film, and um, it really captured my heart. I, I really felt like sort of moved in certain parts, even though I'm watching like a clay yeti um, wearing a, a suit and a bowler hat. S somehow you still are in a moment where you, 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 can, you, you have to consider the humanity of the situation, which sounds ridiculous. Watch the film. You'll understand exactly what I mean. Um, but it is, it is beautiful. Um, it's really well done. It's really well made. And, um, I think it deserved a better reception than it did. I don't think it did very well at the cinemas. In fact, I think it only made about 20 million. Um, so, yeah, check it out on Netflix. Support it. Because uh, it's one of like five um, stop motion animation films that came out in the last decade. 
Um, it's a really difficult process, and it's a dying art. Um, even Ardman films, I think, um, prefer to do things mostly with CGI d- these days. And they're the people that brought us the Wallace and Gromit films and Shaun the Sheep and everything. And, you know, the process, I mean, it, you can't release that many films a year if you have to go through this process where you're literally like just moving something a, a, a hair's width, taking a shot, then going back, moving it again, just ever so slightly, taking a shot. And going back, you know, it can take an hour to uh, produce like one second of, of the film. And when you're producing a 90 minute film, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of people, um, a lot of time. And, you know, you can really see the effort that's been put into this film. But as I say, it's not just about the effort. Um, what you actually have is, is a wonderful story. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a good time. Um, and definitely want to watch with the kids as well. Uh, they'll get a lot out of it, but you will as well. Um, I, I thoroughly recommend it. It was it took me by surprise, and I really really enjoyed it. So um, yeah, that's that's my recommendations for this week. Um, now as for next week, I don't really know. Um, as I say, I want to watch The King of Staten Island. Uh, that looks really really good. Um, I also want to watch um, Debt Collectors 2, or Payback, as it's called. Um, I know I said that last week. Um, really thought... I kind of made a mistake. I thought the um, DVD was released uh, around June 9th, but it's actually July 9th, I think, or July 6th. Um, but it is available to rent on demand. So, um, yeah, I might just have to, you know, pay for it. Um the other film I'm going to be watching, I hopefully won't have to pay for, is uh, on Amazon Prime. And it's uh, a film called uh, The Vast of the Night, or The Vast of Night. And it's this kind of uh, mixed up, weird, quirky, psychological, supernatural, thriller, time travel, maybe, type film. I, You know what? I don't really know what it's understand, but there's been a lot of buzz around it. And I want to check it out, see what's going on. Um, I believe that's an indie film as well, so that could be my indie film of uh, next week. As I say, I think all three films count as indie this week. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully, I'll be watching those uh, during the week. Um, uh, I tell, oh, I'll tell you what I watched last night. Actually, I watched Close Range. Now, as I say, Deck Collectors that I'm going to watch um, is uh, the latest collaboration between Scott Atkins and Jesse V. Johnson. Uh, who have also done films such as um, Avengement, um, Accident Man. Did he do Accident Man? Yeah, I think that was him as well. Um, And Triple Threat. Uh, Yeah, there's just... um, They've been working together quite a lot uh, on a a number of different films. And uh, I was looking for just checking to see how many Scott Atkins films I'd watched. And last night I I found uh, Close Range on uh, Amazon Prime, and I think it's on Netflix as well, but um, I watched that. And what it basically was is a B-movie where um, the script was awful, um, the plot was just... I, I don't I don't even know. I don't even know. It was just a ridiculous film, but it was more of a kind of B-movie, action movie, kind of throwback. Um, supposed to be kind of reminiscent of the old like Van Damme films. Where, like, who cares what the film's about? Let's just see this guy kick someone in the face. And Scott Atkins is amazingly good at kicking people in the face. My God, I don't... I don't. Outside of actual fighting... Um, and yes, I will be watching the UFC after this because I like it. I like MMA and it's the only sport that's actually happening at the moment. Um, but yeah, Scott Atkins is one of the people outside of actual combat sport that I really, really love to watch um, kicking people in faces. In their faces. In any face. All faces. Yeah, I don't think he kicked himself in his own face. Yet. I'm sure he would find a fantastic way of doing that. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. It is the follow-up to the original Deck Collector film. Um, and, you know, I've heard good things. Um, again, these are cheesy action films, but they're, they're done... Um, they're, they are quite self-aware. Um... They don't try to take themselves too seriously, and they do have a lot of fun. 
And it is that kind of charm that's led them to become really, really popular. And I say the collaborations between these two, that director Jesse V. Johnson and Scott Atkins, um, it has become a thing that you keep an eye out for. They're churning them out. I think the, the, the pair of them get at least two films out a year. Um, yeah. So I'll try to watch that during the week. Um, I just hope it's not, you know, bad as close range because... I enjoyed Close Range. I mean, I sat and watched the whole film, but wow. It almost seemed like a parody at points. Like, the thing that would have really made that movie is if someone in the film was kind of like, you know, um, just aware of the fact that it's a bit like like when someone wakes up and... um, Oh, what's the, I'm, I'm trying to think of something. There's definitely a movie where someone wakes up and they're, they're in some kind of cheesy plot or some kind of film. Um, yeah, I just thought if this, if this had like one more character who was just like, can you hear yourself right now? That it would have made the, the film absolutely incredibly hilarious. Um, but the reality is what really sells this film is Scott Atkins and his ability to spin through the air in slow motion and kick someone with at least three of his feet. I don't even know how he does it. Um, just He's just incredible. Um, and considering he's someone that's been in both Holby City and um, Zero Dark Thirty, he's a guy that, you know... I don't know. He's had an interesting career and definitely one that I think he'll enjoy reflecting on when he, when he does retire. Um, but he's someone that, like, sort of... I don't really kind of look out for good films that he's in necessarily. I know that sounds a bit kind of weird and 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 kind of patronizing, but he's someone that I can enjoy in a film, regardless. Um, but if it's not a good film, he's got to at least be kicking people in the face, uh, because his ability to choreograph and kind of work with uh, fight choreographers and execute amazing action sequences is. I'm not sure if I've seen anyone else pull it off to the extent that he does or to the, the level that he does. I mean, you could say Jason Statham, um, but Jason Statham is a former, uh, I think he was training to be an Olympic uh, diver. So physically, he's, um, you know, an incredibly agile, agile person. I do love a good Statham film. Go on the Stafe. Uh But I think... As far as like action stars of, of the UK is concerned, Scott Atkins is pretty much the man. Um, I think that goes without saying now. So yeah, hopefully I'll be able to get to see him kicking some people in the face. Um, what else am I doing during the week? Not a lot. Um, no word on Tom Cruise and his uh, special little Oxford RAF base village thing. Um I honestly can't see myself being on another movie set this year, unfortunately. I was speaking to a friend of mine who uh, I often work with on EastEnders. And, um, you know, they're one of the regular market stall people. And they're not too hopeful about their possibility, like the the idea of them actually getting back on set anytime soon. So it's a weird situation. Unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to take an office job and do something boring. I might actually start being a delivery driver for Asda or something, I don't know. We do what we need to do to, to make ends meet and to, to survive, basically. Uh, people have it worse. Um, and uh, with that being said, um, again, if anyone out there um, is struggling at the moment, um, you know, I find myself having emotional moments for no apparent reason, just because... I can't really do the things I want to do or have the freedoms that I used to have. And um, I understand and I'm cool with it. I'm patient with it. Um, but, you know, it, it it is wearing. It is tough. It is difficult. And uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, um, if you haven't got anyone to talk to, if you haven't got anyone to turn to, um, you can drop me a message. Um, the actual links to this podcast uh we have a facebook page which you can message me on uh we have an instagram page that you can message me on um but the actual host of this podcast podbean uh if you get their app to listen to the the um uh, podcast on there is a, a a section there where you can leave messages um so if you want to talk to me about anything you may not know me i may not know you 
but I will listen, I won't judge, and I'll be patient. And that's what we all need. Just a little bit of compassion, a little bit of patience, a little bit of empathy. Um, and yeah, that's what I like to leave you with. Peace, love, and empathy. Until next week, people, look after yourself and each other, and have a lovely, lovely week. Bye-bye! <laughs>